Jesus, the second person of the triunity of the Godhead and the living word of God declared that God's written word is true. He said in John 17, 17, your word is truth. Furthermore, God's word does not contain any errors and it is incapable of teaching error. Thus, when it comes to the creation narrative, God's word is the true historical record of creation. However, just because it is true does not mean that God's word is believed. Worse yet, Satan himself, the father of lies, seeks to discredit God and what he has said. One of those lies is the theory of evolution. As previously stated, the scientific method studies the repeatable and the testable. Since evolution is neither repeatable or testable, it remains a theory and not a scientific fact. Satan promotes another lie, known as theistic evolution. Theistic evolution discredits the idea that God created out of nothing by divine fiat. Rather, it purports that God uses naturalistic evolution as the means of producing life. God's word says that God said, called, saw, created, separated, made, placed, formed, and blessed. There is no room whatsoever for naturalistic evolution. Another lie promoted by the father of lies is the day-age theory, or what is commonly known as progressive creationism. Progressive creationism claims that God used naturalistic evolution to produce life over long periods of time. Adherents of this view state that the days of creation were not literal solar days or 24-hour periods. Instead, they assign each day of creation to a geological age. A variation of this theory states that creation occurred over six 24-hour days, but these days were separated by long periods of time. Let's be clear. These creative days are not geological ages of hundreds of thousands of years, but legitimate 24-hour periods. There is nothing in the text to indicate that these creation days were anything other than 24-hour periods. Instead, the text indicates these days can only be 24-hour periods. Now, while the term day, yom in the Hebrew, can refer to the part of the day called morning, whenever it is joined with a numerical value, it denotes a 24-hour period. In fact, outside of Genesis 1, the term day is used 410 times and always refers to a normal length day. Therefore, why should it mean anything different here in Genesis? Uh, one other, other lie of Satan is called the gap theory. Now, the gap theory, or the recreation theory, postulates that there was an original creation in Genesis 1-1 in which Satan fell, resulting in the earth being formless and void in Genesis 1-2 and needing to be recreated in Genesis 1-3. Adherents to this theory purport that there is a gap of millions of years, either between verse 1 and 2 or between 2 and 3. A major premise of this theory is the phrase in Genesis 1-2, formless and void, tohu wa bohu. Now, this theory claims that the Hebrew terms tohu and bohu describe the result of judgment based on the usage of these terms in Jeremiah 4-23. Jeremiah 4.23 says, I looked on the earth, and behold, it was formless and void, tohu wabhohu, and to the heavens, and they had no light. Now, the problems with the gap theory are numerous. First, tohu and bohu are not terms of judgment. 
The two terms literally mean something as being unshaped and uninhabited or unformed and unfilled. Folks, context is the key to understanding the passage. So in the context of Jeremiah, God had raised up pagan nations against Israel because of their disobedience to him. The result from Jeremiah's perspective was that the land of Israel was left in an unshaped and uninhabitable condition. Now, obviously, while these terms are used to describe the land of Israel after God's hands of judgment, there is nothing in the text of Genesis 1 to indicate a judgment upon the created realm. Moses, for example, used the term tohu in his song to describe the wilderness of Sinai as uninhabitable and inhospitable to human life. Listen to the words of Moses in Deuteronomy 32.10. He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste, tohu, of a wilderness. In fact, the context of Genesis clearly states that on Genesis 1-1 that God created time, space, and matter. The initial result after creating time, space, and matter was that the created realm, the heavens and the earth, were unformed and unfilled. However, it was not God's intention to leave the created realm in this condition. Isaiah says in Isaiah 45, verse 18, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is the God who formed the earth and made it, he established it, and did not create it a waste place, tohu, but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is none else. So the first issue with the gap theory is that tohu and bohu are not terms of judgment. A second issue with the gap theory is that the verb was in the phrase the earth was formless and void. Now the verb was, haya, usually means to be or to exist. Proponents of the gap theory posit that the, term, that the verb haya means to become. Thus they claim that God created the heavens and the earth and then the heavens and the earth became formless and void. Now, again, there are several issues with this interpretation. One, the verb hayah is only translated as become five times in the entire Old Testament. Genesis 27-29, Isaiah 16-4, Ecclesiastes 2-22, Ecclesiastes 11-3, and Nehemiah 6-6. Two, the verb hayah does not have a prefixed lamed. Thus, it simply means to be or to exist. In other words, so if it has a lamet attached to it, prefixed to it, in the front of it, then it would mean to become. But it doesn't, so it simply means to be or exist. Three, the phrase the earth was formless and void functions as a noun clause representing a state of being, not becoming. Again, Genesis 1-1 presents the steps God took in creation. First, God took steps to form that which was tohu and Bohu. It was unformed, it was unfilled, and then proceeded to take that which he formed and filled it. Thus, days one through three, God is forming creation, and days four through six, God is filling creation. And so, as we think on the gap theory for one final moment, again, there are those two problems uh, that we dealt with why the gap theory doesn't work. Number one, tohu bohu are not terms of judgment. Therefore, when he simply he's simply stating a condition of fact, you know, it, it's without form. It, it it's empty. It's not filled. 
And then the second issue we discussed here was that the phrase was in the phrase was formless and void simply means this is the state of existence that the creation was in. It doesn't mean that creation became something. It simply was unfilled. Now, with that in mind, the idea of unfilled and being filled, uh, unformed and being formed, I'd like you to consider the following breakdown of the creation narrative. So in Genesis 1, 1 to 5, we have day 1, God forms time, space, matter, darkness, and light. On day 4, God fills space with the sun, moon, and stars in Genesis 1, 14 to 19. On day 2, God forms the expanse or the atmosphere, Genesis 1, 6 to 8. On day five, God fills the sky with birds and the water with fish and sea creatures, Genesis 1, 20 to 23. On day three, God forms the dry land, vegetation, plants, and trees, Genesis 1, 9 to 13. And on day six, God fills the land with mammals, reptiles, and humanity. Now, what I would like us to consider in our time together here is that on day one, God formed what was unformed, and on day four, he filled what was unfilled. And so we've entitled this message, From Unformed and Unfilled to Formed and Filled, Day One, Formed, Day Four, Filled. And so we'll begin by considering day one. God forms time, space, matter, darkness, and light. Again, day one, God forms time, space, matter, darkness, and light. Read along with me, Genesis chapter 1, 1 to 5. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was evening, and there was morning, one day. Notice day one of creation begins in Genesis 1.1. On day one, God brought into existence all the materials needed for creation, time, space, and matter. At that moment, the creation is unformed and unfilled. And immediately it is noted that there is darkness, or literally the complete absence of light. Prior to creation, there was nothing, not even darkness. But God created the darkness just as he created light. Isaiah 45, verse 7, the prophet declares, The one forming light and creating darkness, I am the Lord who does all these. Now, I want you to understand that the darkness here is not to be viewed as evil or wicked, since at the end of day one, God declared all that he had made to be good. The earth, as of day one, is an unformed mass of water. Here it's referred to as the deep, or the kosek, the deep. Now, the term deep can be translated as salty deep. What we have here is the primeval world ocean, the abyss. And God covered the earth with this primeval world ocean so that only water was seen on the face of the earth. The psalmist confirms this in Psalm 104, verse 6. You covered it, that is the earth, with the deep as with a garment. The waters were standing above the mountains. Now, this is what Peter refers to when he says in 2 Peter 3, 5, 
the earth was formed out of water and through water. Also note here in Genesis 1 that the text says that the Holy Spirit was moving over the surface of the waters. Now the term was moving, rahap, means to brood, to hover, or to flutter over. We see this term again in Deuteronomy 32 verse 11. Like an eagle, eagle that stirs up its nest that hovers over its young. So this hovering aspect describes the preparation for the hatching of an egg. Here the Holy Spirit is hovering like a mother bird waiting for the dry land to hatch from the primeval world ocean. The term water, mayim, is different from the term deep, chosek. The deep, chosek, is a chaotic, lifeless abyss, but now... The Holy Spirit is managing the unformed and unfilled, and it is being transformed into life-sustaining water. Just like the inspiration of scriptures, the waters are subject to the superintendence of the Holy Spirit. Day one also includes the creation of light. Now you say, well, what is light? Light is electromagnetic energy. The creation of light included the visible part of the electromagnetic spectrum as well as the invisible parts, such as what we call infrared and ultraviolet. The first law of thermodynamics says that energy cannot be created from nothing. It must be transferred from another source. Well, what was the source of this light? 1 John 1.5 tells us God is light. The source is light. When God created light, it came from himself. So when God says, let there be light, he transferred it from his own essence. Let there be. One Hebrew verb, yahi. The phrase, and there was, is vayahi. Now these two verbs are significant because they are both related to God's name, Yahweh, the I Am. Yahweh's first spoken word, yaheh vayahi is a play on his own name. In the recreated heavens and the earth, the new earth will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. Why? Because God will produce light from himself. Isaiah chapter 60 and verse 19 and 20 says, No longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor for brightness will the moon give you light, but you'll have the Lord for an everlasting light and your God for your glory. Your sun will no longer set, nor will your moon wane, for you have you will have the Lord for an everlasting light, and the days of your mourning will be over. Revelation 22, verse 5, And there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor of the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. You know, when we take a moment and consider the fact that we, as human beings, can produce light without the need of the sun, moon, and stars then therefore it should not be inconceivable that God can create light without the need of sun, moon, and stars. Now in Jewish theology, the rabbis have noted that this light was not the sun. They say the light that God created was a special light that functioned uniquely during those days. Those three days before day four when God created the sun, moon, and stars. So what is that light? According to the rabbis, the light is the Shekinah glory. According to Jewish history, the Shekinah was always appearing as physical light. The term Shekinah comes from the Hebrew term Shakin, which describes the presence of God in a particular locale. 
often associated with his glory. Exodus 24, verse 16. And the glory, the kabod of God, of the Lord, of Yahweh, abode, sakin, upon Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered it six days. That Hebrew term for glory, kabod, refers to weight or to burden. It signifies someone that is deserving of respect, deserving of attention, deserving of obedience. Now, when we come to the Greek text, the term for glory in Greek is doxa, meaning brightness or splendor or light. And it describes the true apprehension of God in his unchanging essence. And so when we refer to the Shekinah glory, we're talking about a physical manifestation of God in the form of light. It is the Shekinah glory light that shines out of darkness and shines into the heart of people, giving them the knowledge of God's glory seen in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now God separates the light from the darkness. He places fixed boundaries upon them. Job 26 verse 10, he has inscribed a circle on the surface of the water at the boundary of light and darkness. Job 38, 19 and 20, where is the way to the dwelling of light and darkness? Where is its place that you may take it to its territory, that you may discern the paths to its homes? See, God made some places light and some places dark. This is God setting forth the cycle of time and motion. He named the light day and named the darkness night. And as we noted previously, naming something is to have authority over it. God has authority over time. He is not controlled by time, but rather controls it's it. Now, if you have any questions as to whether the first day was a 24-hour period, the text states that there was evening and there was morning one day. Now, of all the major English translations of the Bible available, only the New American Standard Bible 1995 update and the Tree of Life version actually translate the Hebrew literally. Again, it states that the evening and morning were one day. Rechad yom. Rechad yom. The lack of the definite article indicates that the phrase must be read as one day. Notice the wording. It's very key. One. Rechad is a compound one, meaning one is made up of more than one part. For example, in Deuteronomy 6.4, Yahweh our God is one, achad, meaning God is a trinity. He's one God made up of three persons. In the context of Genesis 1, a day is made up of two parts, evening and morning. Outside of Genesis 1, the phrases evening and morning is used 113 times and always refers to a 24-hour day. The scripture itself says there are 12 hours in the day, Genesis, John eleven nine. 9. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in a day? Now, logically, that implies there's 12 hours in a night. Two 12-hour periods equal one 24-hour period. Over the next several days, the text tells us in Genesis 1, there was a second day, a third day, a fourth day. In each of those examples, the omission of the definite article indicates that these days were following the normal pattern established on day one, a 24-hour cycle. On day six and day seven, the text reads the sixth day and the seventh day. Now, while these days continued following the 24-hour cycle, the inclusion of the definite article on days six and seven shows us that these days were uniquely distinct. Day six is distinct. Why? 
Because God made humanity in his image. And why is day seven distinct? It's distinct because God rested from his created work. So on day one, God takes that which is unformed and he forms time, space, matter, darkness, and light. Now let's move forward to day four. And we're going to see that on day four, God takes the unfilled. And now he fills space with the sun, the moon, and the stars. Read along with me in Genesis chapter 1, verses 14 to 19. Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and years. Let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, the lesser light to govern the night. And he made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, to separate the light from the darkness, and God saw that it was good. There was evening, there was morning, a fourth day. So on day four, God fills the expanse of the heavens with lights. This flies in the face of evolutionary theory, claiming the sun came before the earth. Genesis 1 clearly states the earth came before the sun. As well, having the sun appear after the creation of light is a direct affront to pagan religions, which worship the sun as the source of light. This is why in Deuteronomy 4.19, God forbid the worship of the sun, the moon, and the stars. He says, Beware not to lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, and be drawn away and worship them and serve them, those which the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. Now, see, the heavenly luminaries are not to be worshipped. Why? Because God alone is the source of light and life. John 1, 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now, as again, coming to our text in Genesis 1, the term lights, maor, means lamps. It refers to objects which would produce illumination. God made two great lights, the sun, the greater light, and the moon, the lesser light along with the stars to serve as sources of light. Listen to the words of the psalmist in Psalm 136, verse 7. To him who made the great lights, for his loving kindness is everlasting. The sun to rule by day, for his loving kindness is everlasting. The moon and the stars to rule by night, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Psalm 148, verse 3. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all stars of night. Jeremiah 31, 35 says, Thus says Yahweh, who gives the sun for light by day and fix the order of the moon and the stars for a light by night. Now notice here that by referring to the sun and moon as two great lights, it describes the largest of size and brightness from the viewpoint of humanity. Now it's interesting that modern astronomy uses the same language to classify stars. Let me give you some facts about the sun. One, the sun is not yellow. Fact one, the sun is not yellow. It is white. It only appears yellow due to the scattering of blue light by the atmosphere. Two, the sun's diameter is 109 times that of the Earth. The sun's diameter is 109 times that of the Earth. Number three, the sun's volume is 1.3 million times the Earth volumes and 330 times the mass. Four, the sun puts out 3.86 by 10,026 watts of power requiring four million tons of matter being converted every second into energy. Now, I give you those facts for this reason. 
if the sun is that large and that powerful, how much more larger and powerful is the God who created it? Think about that. Now, I want you also to consider some facts about the moon. First, number one, fact one, the moon is a less greater light. Why? Because it doesn't produce its own light. The moon is actually black. Its surface is covered with basalt. It appears white because it reflects the sunlight. Fact two, the moon's gravity causes the tides. And the tides clean the shorelines. They keep the ocean current circulating. It prevents the ocean from stagnation. Let's consider some facts about the stars. First fact, the nearest star to our sun is Alpha Centauri. It is 4.37 light years away or 25 trillion miles away. It's pretty far. It's quite a distance away from planet Earth. It's not even in our solar system. Now, God already revealed this in the wording of the phrase, and the stars. The wording in Hebrew makes the stars of secondary importance to man. Obviously, they are because they do not directly impact us in the same way the sun and moon do. Okay? They're a lesser light. Now, it's estimated that there are 10 to the 22nd power stars in the known universe. Now, you say, well, what, how, what does that mean? What, what, what are we talking about here? Well, it would take a computer counting a trillion stars every second over 300 years to count a number that high. There's a lot of stars out there, in other words. And this is an estimate. Scientists admit that it is impossible to count all the stars in the universe. You know what's funny? God already told them that. Genesis 15, verse 5, he took him outside and said, Now look to the heavens and count the stars, if you're able to count them. He said to him, So shall your descendants be. In other words, the stars are innumerable. They're impossible to count them all. Jeremiah 33, 22. Well, as the host of heaven cannot be counted, and the sand of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the descendants of, my, of David my servant and the Levites who minister to me. Stars are innumerable. So God fills the heaven, he fills space with these lamps, the greater light and the lesser lights. The moon is a lesser light than the sun. The stars are a lesser light than the moon. But he places them there for three reasons. Reason number one, God commanded the lights to govern the day and night. You see, during the first three days, God himself separated the light and the darkness. However, God now fills space with the sun, the moon, and the stars and places them for the purpose of taking over this separation of light and darkness. In particular, God set the sun and the moon to mark the day and the night, i.e., the passing of time. Second, fact number two. God commanded these lights to govern the signs, the seasons, the days, and the years. Now, in order to understand this second command, we've got to work backwards, beginning with years and working back to signs. Again, he set the sun, the moon, and the stars to govern the signs, the seasons, the days, and the years. Now, on day one... God formed the cycle of time. Now on day four, God fills out time by establishing a lunisolar calendar. See, on day one, God established the day was a 24-hour cycle, beginning with evening or sunset. By establishing the day, God set the earth on its rotational axis. So on day four, God sets the sun to determine the years and the moon to determine the months. So with the establishment of the sun, God sets the earth's rotation around the sun, providing for the existence of years. The appearance of the new moon marks the beginning of a new month. 
In fact, the Hebrew term, which translates month, chodes, also translated as new moon. Numbers chapter 10 and verse 10. And in the days of your gladness and in your solemn days, in the beginning of your months, your chodes, your new moons. And in the beginning of your months, your new moons, your chodes, ye shall offer a burnt offering unto the Lord. Numbers 28 verse 11. He said, Wherefore wilt thou go to him today? It is neither new moon, Kharish, or Sabbath, 2 Kings 4.23. So following God's established pattern, the solar year was separated into 12 lunar months of 29 or 30 days. And so this lunar solar year is 354 days, 8 hours, 38 seconds long, with an additional month added 7 times every 19 years to synchronize the lunar cycle with the solar cycle. So on day four, when God set the sun and the moon and the, and the stars, he established a marking or passing of time via months and years. The, the moon sets forth the months. The sun sets forth the year. So as the moon rotates around the earth, it counts the passing of the month. And as the earth rotates around the sun, it marks the passing of the a year. Now the seasons are also determined by the moon. Psalm 104 verse 19. He appointed the moon for seasons. The sun knoweth his going down. Now the term seasons does not simply denote spring, summer, fall, and winter. In fact, the term seasons here in Genesis 1, moed, is the same term which refers to the appointed times or the sacred festivals. Leviticus 23, 4 says these are the appointed times. These are the moed, the seasons of the Lord. Holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the times appointed. The moed for them. Hence, right there on day four, God set the sun, moon, and stars in the heavens to determine the appointed times of worship. Additionally, when God created the sun, moon, and stars, he set them in their place to determine the astronomical seasons. Here in the northern hemisphere, there's the four astronomical seasons are spring, summer, fall, and winter. Spring, March equinox to June solstice. Summer, June solstice to September equinox. Fall, September equinox to December solstice. Winter, December solstice to March equinox. Finally, God set the sun, moon, and the stars not only for the years and the days and the seasons, but also for signs. Again, Genesis 1.14, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night. Let them be for signs. Now, the term signs, holt, used to describe something that points to or signifies an unusual event. God set the sun, the moon, the stars to be navigational signs. In Job 28, 31 to 33, it says, Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or lose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth a constellation in its season and guide the bear with her satellites? Do you know the ordinance of the heaven or fix their rule over the earth? So right there we see various stars which served as navigational signs and the point there in Job 38 31 to 33 is that man cannot control the movement of the stars or the constellations these signs these stars declare God's glory the heavens are telling the glory of God their expanse is declaring the work of his hand Psalm 19 1 1 Corinthians 15, 40-41, there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. 
Now, in what way are these signs? One way they are signs is they declare the glory of God by pointing us to Jesus. The heavenly signs are tied to the seasons which determine the time of the Lord's feast. The Lord's feast are prophetic signposts pointing Jesus, the Son of the Most High. You see, each of those feasts are controlled, are they're, they're, the keeping of them is determined by the position of the sun, the moon, and the star in a given time of the year. And so when we come to the Feast of Passover, which is determined by the first full moon in spring, it prophesies of the death of Christ. The Feast of Unleavened Bread prophesies of the sinlessness of Christ and mankind's release from the bondage of sin. The Feast of First Fruit prophesies the resurrection of Christ. The Feast of Pentecost prophesies the descent of the Holy Spirit in the beginning of the church. The Feast of Trumpets prophesies of the rapture of the church. The Day of Atonement prophesies the tribulation and return of Christ. And then the Feast of Tabernacle prophesies the Millennial Kingdom. You see, God established these heavenly bodies as signs, plural, meaning that the Lord's Feast were initiated following creation, along with the Sabbath, long before God rehearsed them at Mount Sinai. Let me give you another reason why God set the heavenly luminaries as a sign. It's a sign of Israel and its continued existence. Listen to the words of Genesis 37, 9 through 11. He had another dream and related to his brothers and said, Lo, I have had still another dream, and behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to him. He related it to his father and to his brothers. His father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother... And your brothers actually come to bow ourselves before you to the ground. Now there in the context of Genesis 37, Jacob is, the, is representative in Joseph's dream as the sun, Rachel as the moon, and the stars as the other 11 brothers. In other words, the 12 stars were the 12 tribes of Israel. Revelation 12, 1 and 2, a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head with a crown of 12 stars. And she was with child and cried out, being in labor and pain, gave birth. Again, the sun, the moon, and the stars ties right back to Genesis 37. And it's a picture of Israel. Jacob, Rachel. Jacob and Rachel are always looked at as the uh, father and mother of Israel. Uh, even though some of the other tribes came from three other women. But nonetheless, Rachel was chief of those in Jacob's eye. Twelve stars, twelve tribes. Uh, she was with child. That child was the Messiah. The Messiah came forth from Israel. Jeremiah 31, 35 to 36. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and fix the order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his, is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel will also cease from being a nation before me forever. You see, when you look to the heavenly luminaries, you ought to be reminded of Israel, the wife of God. Now, before we go further, consider this. He says in Jeremiah 31, 35 to 36, that if the moon and the sun and the stars cease to exist, that they stop functioning as God has ordered them to function, then Israel as a nation will cease to exist. But as long as the sun and the moon and the stars continue existing and following their prescribed intention, Israel will always exist. Isaiah 54, verses 5 to 6 says, For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. For the Lord has called you, like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, even like a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your God. 
Jeremiah 31, 32, Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers and the dad took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. You see, Israel is the wife of God. Currently, they are divorced. But there's coming a day when God will take them again as his wife. That she is that the woman there in Revelation is clothed with the sun, with the sun result refers rather to her exalted status. The moon under her feet describes God's covenant relationship with Israel. And so God always has a place. And so as long as the sun rises and sets, as long as the moon rises and sets, as long as the stars continue to dance across the skies at night, we are reminded that God has not forsaken his people Israel and that they are there and are precious to him and will continue to exist. So on day one, God created time, space, matter, light, and darkness. On day four, God made the sun, the moon, and the stars to fill what he formed, to give light, to guide the cycle of time, and to prophetically point to Jesus. I want to make a point here that on the first day, the term light is used five times, and the term darkness is used twice, making a total of seven. The Jews view view five mentions of light as representing the five books of Moses, known as the Torah, the law of God, because the light of the Lord is a light and a lamp. There's five kinds of light in Scripture. There's the light of creation, the light of redemption, the light for the one who repents, the light of the temple, and the light of the commandments. Most importantly, day one is a picture, my friends, of salvation. You see, the unbeliever is like an unformed, unfilled abyss covered in darkness. But then the Holy Spirit comes and shines the light of God upon the individual, driving the darkness away and transforming the abyss into waters of eternal life and granting regeneration. Listen to the words of Scripture. John 3, 6, that which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of spirit is spirit. Ephesians 5, 7 and 8, therefore do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly in darkness, but now you are light of the world. Walk as children of light. John 4, 14, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Titus 3, 5, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. God forms the believer into the image of Jesus and personally fills him with his spirit. Ephesians 4, 24, put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Colossians 3.10, you have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. As well, just as physical light illuminates the way, God's word is a light that illuminates your path, believer. Its revelation provides a right way for you to think, a right way for you to act, a right way for you to live, allowing you to walk in the light. Heed the word of 1 John 1, 7. Walk in the light as he himself is in the light, and you'll have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son will cleanse you from all sin. Friends, on a clear night, you can look up at the night sky. You can see the vastness of the universe. Atheists look at the vastness of the universe and claim that man is so insignificant compared to the universe that if a God existed, he'd have no time for man. Stephen Hawking, noted theoretical physicist and notorious atheist, once said, We are such insignificant creatures on a minor planet of a very average star in the outer suburb of 100 billion galaxies, so it's difficult to believe in a God that would care about us or even notice our existence. But I want you to hear the words of King David of Israel, friend of God, upon looking at the vastness of the universe, arrived at a far different conclusion. He said in Psalm 8, verse 3 to 5, When I consider your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. 
Now, David used some anthropomorphisms here. Your fingers. God doesn't have fingers the way you and I have fingers, but he describes them as having fingers to show how insignificantly small the universe is from God's point of view. He made it with his fingers. Now, that would make us even smaller, wouldn't it? Indeed, it would. But in spite of our seeming insignificance, God created humanity in his image. That's what David means when he says a little lower than God. He placed us in a position of authority over his creation. Psalmist says in Psalm 8, 6 to 8, You make man to rule over the works of your hands. You put all things under man's feet, all sheep and oxen, beasts of the field, birds of the heavens, fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. You see, my friends, when you and I look at the greatness of the sun, the greatness of the moon, the vastness of the universe, we should not think of how insignificant we are, but of how big God is, and in turn, praise and worship Him. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, Psalm 8, 9. By looking at the heavenly luminaries, Christian, you ought to be reminded of God's appointed time. God established these appointed times for his people to gather for worship. And like the feast of old, these times ought to be solemn occasions. When we gather for worship, it's not to have a party, but to worship. It's to be solemn. It's to be a serious time. It's a time when we worship God, not ourselves. We're not there to pat ourselves on the back and talk about how great we are, but rather how great God is and what he has done. The feast of old were distinct from the other days of the week. Modern Christian, let me ask you, is your day of worship different from the rest of your work week or is it just another day? Is your worship day different than every other day? You know, God established these appointed times to be times of rejoicing. Sadly, many worship services today are anything but joyful. Instead, it's filled with sorrowful singing, a lack of praise, and shallow preaching. Worship today in many churches is painful at best. God's appointed times were times of fellowship, when God demanded sanctification from the worshiper. Many today come to worship services to fellowship only with their friends, and a call to sanctification has become taboo. We dare not call people to be holy. The feast days were times of singing and bringing an offering and reading and teaching the scripture. Friend, any worship service that does not contain those four items fails short of meeting God's standard. I pray that the church of God would look to the feast of old and learn how to approach a holy God. Finally, the sun, moon, and stars have a prophetic purpose. They serve as a means of pointing to the coming of the Messiah. Now, Christ has already fulfilled the feast of Passover, unleavened bread, first fruit, and Pentecost in his first advent. He will fulfill the feast of trumpets, atonement, and tabernacles in his second advent. And if you would take the time to study the feast of God, believer, you would see the plan of God laid out in eternity past. You'd have a roadmap for God's plan for the ages. God's holy days display from beginning to end his plan to make Christ king. Let's pray. Father God, the Holy One of Israel, the Ancient of Days, we come into your presence through Jesus Christ, the Redeemer of man. Father God, I thank you for his precious blood that saves us that redeems us from the curse of sin and the destruction of hell. Father, I would ask and pray that you'd get be given worship. That, Lord, as we take time and look around this created realm, Father, we wouldn't look at it and think, well, it must have just happened all of a sudden or over millions and billions of years. But rather, Father, we would see your hand. We'd see your fingers in every little part of creation. And in turn, we would worship you. Father, as we think about the sun, the moon, and the stars being set there, Father, not just to mark the passing of time, but also to mark the holy days, the feast days, the days of worship. But, Father God, we would consider what it means to worship you, and that, Lord, we would set aside our 
worship days as this thought worship days solemn days days in which we give you the praise and the glory not days that are treated just like any other day of the week oh father i pray that you'd give us give us that joy instead of sorrow help our worship to be a time of joyfulness rather than a time of sorrow help our worship be a time of praise help our worship time to be a time of offering help our worship time to be a time of preaching so that lord you would receive all the glory father forgive us forgive us when we look at creation and just pass it by when we look at creation and do not think upon you, forgive us. When we look at creation and think it's just another thing there for us to exploit, Father, forgive us. I ask and pray, Father, that you would teach us how to have dominion over this creation. You have placed us here to be an authority over creation. Oh, Lord, teach us how to best use what you have created for us. And in turn, that as we use it, we would use it in a way that worships and glorifies you. And so, Father, we ask and pray that you'd keep us from the evil one. We ask and pray, Lord, that you'd keep us even from ourselves. And that, we, Lord, we ask that in all that we do and all that we say, we would give you all the praise and all the glory now and forever. Amen.